welcome to That's What She Pled with attorneys Christina Goldberg and Julie Lurson from Lurson Goldberg LLC, law powered by women. It's time to shake up the old standards of law and of business. Join these two witty, intelligent, and sassy female business owners who are taking their industry by storm, challenging stereotypes, and shattering ceilings. These two are on a mission to educate, empower, and support not only their own clients, but other powerhouse female entrepreneurs. Come for a laugh and stay for the vibe as Julie and Christina hold nothing back and share the truth of what it is to be female attorneys and business owners through discussion of current events, original stories, and inspiring guests. Now, on to the show. Happy Tuesday, everybody. It's it's Christy and Julie. We're your favorite attorneys, of course. But we are here again with That's What She Pled for this week. And we have actually a really awesome the- guest with us. Yeah, we're on the road again. Yes. <laughs> a few episodes ago, we went to Texas. Even though everything looks pretty much the same in the background, you know, we were in Texas. And now we're in New York with a powerhouse. Are you going to sing again, Julie? Uh, you mean oh, my Willie, my best Willie Nelson? Yeah. On the road again. See, I don't think he has the greatest of voices, you know, by comparison. I'm... However, I shouldn't say that. Hang on. Anyway, we went to Texas and now we're catching up with Michelle Merman. And there's actually a connection between our road trips because Margot Pillisher, with whom we spoke a couple of episodes ago, started her career in New York. And she started her career working with our guest today, Michelle. We're covering a lot of ground, but it's a small world. And so we're excited to sit down with Michelle. Um, She is a very experienced attorney. Her firm is Merman, Markowitz, and Landau. They're based in New York City, the Big Apple. And like us, she also handles lots of injury law and related negligent sorts of cases. And so it's kind of fun to have somebody who's doing similar work and with us today so we can kind of compare and contrast and talk about our experiences. So welcome, Michelle. It's good to be here. Thank you. Great. My gosh, you're spending your time with us, so we thank you. You're Michelle, you're licensed in six jurisdictions? Yes, Yes, a variety of states. My gosh. The reason is, first of all, I happen to be a very good test taker. So Ah. unfortunately for many people out there, I can study for two or three weeks and pass a bar. I have a method to my madness. But the reason I did take all of the bars was several decades, decades ago, I thought that I would expand my practice into a variety of states. So I took California, New Jersey, Connecticut, Florida. I have to confess I waved into Washington, D.C., I did not take the test. <laughs> Slacker. Yeah. Unbelievable. Was it waving the best way to get licensed? Many states say, at least when I took the bars, that, and again, it's quite a while ago in the 80s and 90s, that you had to practice more than 50% in the state if you were going to wave in. So I was not going to commit to practicing more than 50%, so I took the bars. Ah, okay. Interesting. I, I'm yeah, originally licensed in Virginia, and I, I I feel like D.C. was a place where you could get reciprocity, but 
Right. Not you could sure. wave in there. Easily, yeah. Very easy. And I and I became licensed in North Carolina via the reciprocity process, which was quite rigorous, to be mm-hmm. honest. And then 10 years after I got my original license, I moved to Florida, which has reciprocity with no one. Everybody's yeah. a carpet bagger. Right. So you have to sit down and go through that horrid process. It took me more than two or three weeks. But right. it took me <laughs> meltdowns and months. <laughs> Take the bar. Yeah, just to prepare. Right. My thought about Florida was that they really did not want people from all over the United States Mm -hmm. descending on the state. So that's why they made us take the bar again. I thought when I took the bar again, it's, you know, decades ago, Florida was the hardest. It was multiple guests on the multiple choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I took a bar prep course and I remember it was, they were constantly invoking the anti carpet bagger. And you had to know all the intricacies of the procedure, criminal, right. civil. It was it was just horrible. Mm-hmm. And the homesteading act. You had to know the homesteading inside and out, right? The rule against perpetuities. I still don't know what that is, or I don't know. But Disney invoked it recently. <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah, that's right. So we're all going to catch up on the rule against perpetuities. There we go. A lot of research. So Michelle, you happen to be the record holder for largest ever verdict for a client for a rape victim. Is that right? That's correct. Back in 1985, as a matter of fact, I had, you know, rape trauma syndrome at that time wasn't even in the psychological manual. It took a few more years for it to be recognized. Hit the DSM. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So not only did I have to prove the liability, but I also had to prove that my client suffered trauma as a result of the rape. And if you can imagine in the early 80s, there were no rape trauma centers. There was one in New York City at St. Vincent's Hospital, which no longer exists. It's been torn down. You know, in helping my client locate the appropriate care, it was very, very, very difficult. She was a lovely young woman. She was about 28 at the time. Her husband was a nighttime bartender. She lived in a private house. They had just had construction done and the contractors had changed the side door, but they put the lock in upside down, backwards. So from the inside, it appeared locked. From the outside, it wasn't. And it was just probably somebody was looking to break into a house and hers turned into the easy one to get into. She had two children. They were sleeping in the next room. And uh, what made it particularly devastating was that one of them was autistic. And she worked with him constantly in one of her basement rooms. They had set up a quiet room for him. And of course, after this happened, she was beaten in bed and raped, and her children slept through it. And after this happened, she couldn't go down to the basement. She was too frightened. And Of course, it had ramifications in her marriage and in taking care of her own children. And she was from Ireland. She had a beautiful brogue and a very religious woman. And she could never get peace because of this. What was interesting was that her priest recommended a book to her written by a rabbi. Of course, it's hard to forget some things like this. And the book is still used. It's called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. 
And my jury was out for several days, and they prayed. They told me afterwards they prayed each time before they sat down to discuss the case. Wow. Oh, wow. gosh. It was That's incredible. Victory. That's impressive. I mean, ugh, tragic. Right. Yeah. It was yeah. tragic. Well, and you're, so I, that sort of leads me, I mean, you have, your accolades are, are longer, it's just a huge list. You're, you're, you lead the New York State Trialers Association, founded the Brooklyn Women's Bar Foundation. You give back in, in all sorts of ways, large and, large and small support, kids, at-risk groups, museums, all of that. But I, I think, and, and uh, tremendous, unbelievable. But what really made you get into becoming a lawyer? What's what's your path? What's, right. what's Michelle's path? Oh, and injury so, law? Injury law. Well, you know, the joke is I fell into injury law because it was not <laughs> pun intended. Right. No pun. Well, a pun is intended. <laughs> but I was always very, very active in the community. Always. My father was, his parents were, my aunt was. I remember in high school thinking I was very liberated and I announced to my father I was going down to Washington to do the anti-war demonstrations. He said, terrific, we'll all go. And there I was with my parents and my <laughs> sister and my aunt in another car and all my thoughts <laughs> about being so liberal and progressive and ultra just went down the toilet. Because <laughs> you had all these chaperones with you. Right, all these... Well, they were going too. Because well, of course, they were right, right, so, right. You know, it was very hard to be to break out. Right. Anyway, so that's how I grew up in a very engaged family. I went to Sarah Lawrence, and again, Sarah Lawrence was was a, was a woman's school. But by the time I was there, it was starting to have men. And again, the school was very liberal, was very engaged, and I decided in my third year that I was going to apply to law school. I had a very good friend there who was a, a young Quaker man who was not a draft resistor. In other words, he was an evader. He didn't sign up for the draft. Again, you have to remember this is 1972, 73. Yeah. He believed that you could not support the war effort at all. So he was caught, of course, by the FBI, and he ended up in a Kentucky federal prison for approximately a year. We're talking about, you know, a very nice young man, and he said he was very lucky because he wasn't thrown into the general population. He was put into the library. So he had a chance to get to know people gradually so he didn't become a victim right away. But his experience and the stories that he told me uh, made me very interested in, in uh, prisoners' rights. And I ended up applying to Antioch Law School. It was the second year the school was in existence. And so I was applying in 72 to 73. I started in 73. And we were the first school in the country to have a clinical program. The school was started by Jean and Edgar Camper Khan. Uh, she was the first black woman lawyer but woman student allowed at Yale Law School. Oh. And their vision was to start a poverty law firm with the students as the interns and lawyers in Washington, D.C. So there I was, second graduating class. I graduated college just before I turned 20. I started law school when I was 20. 
and I was representing prisoners on disciplinary shots and helping with habeas corpus and going through all their other clinics. They had a family law clinic, commercial clinic, and it was really a fantastic experience. Yeah. Yeah. Just go ahead and jump in at the ground. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What's a great doing? Out what you love and what you don't love. So what I wanted to do, I wanted to come back to New York. That was, I was not going to stay in Washington, D.C. To me, it felt very much like the South, and especially then. Yeah. And I came back to New York, and nobody at all knew what Antioch School of Law was. You know, we had no reputation. We had nothing. It's very hard to find a job. And I write to places for a job, and they write back, Dear Mr. Mm-hmm. Turchin, my maiden name is Turchin, and Michelle, I guess they figured, you know, it's really my Michael. Exactly. So I got a lot of Mr. Rejection letters. My father was a lawyer. He was a tax lawyer at a CPA, and he ran into a friend who said that Arthur Spat, who ultimately took the bench in New York and made it to the federal bench in the Eastern District, needed an needed uh, an associate. So I went over there. I interviewed, and Mr. Spat said, "Come back tomorrow," which was a Saturday, and. I said, well, I guess I'm the rest of the people who are my second interview. I walk in the door and he said, these are your first clients. I didn't didn't even know I'd been hired. So naive. So I thought I was hired to do corporate commercial work. But this this spat at that time had been a negligence lawyer. He had a, a big negligence practice, a lot of medical malpractice cases. And he's, I did corporate commercial work for him. And then he sent me to court one day to answer a case and get an adjournment. The judge would not adjourn it. He said, go pick a jury. I called Mr. Spat. He said, go pick a jury, counselor. Okay. So the theme continues. Oh, right. So you just, them. you're just in the pool and you got to figure out a way to exactly. navigate. Exactly. And so well, I know you, right. So I know you spoke to Margo. Right. And, and she. That's, I think she had those sorts of experiences. Exactly. That's exactly how I ended up training my lawyers. Because you can explain, you can talk, you can study, you can practice. But Both there's prepare. nothing There's nothing like standing up for the first time in front of a jury and having to say what you want to say. Yep. Nothing really prepares you for that. There's no. No, <laughs> no not a thing. So do you consider Mr. Spatz and some of these folks mentors? Yes, definitely. Arthur Spatz was definitely a mentor. Definitely. And again, because of many of the things that he did, he was so encouraging. Number one. Number two, everything I did, he thought was fantastic. I I don't think we have uh, bills of particulars in Florida. It's a pleading device we have in New York. It's very old-fashioned. First, you serve a summons and complaint that starts the lawsuit. The defendants answer the lawsuit. That's called the answer. They serve a demand for a bill of particulars, which is a series of questions designed to elicit more information about the case, just what your claims are. It's not supposed to be proof or evidence, just claims. Anyway, one of my first cases was spat, which I ended up trying uh, several years later. 
was an assault case in not a Burger King, but something along those lines, a McDonald's or Burger King. They served their demand for a bill of particulars, and I didn't want just this bad to know what a novice I really was. So I took this document home with me. I spent the entire night writing it, the entire night writing it. It was a masterpiece. <laughs> it must have gone on for uh, scores of pages. Anyway, he came back the next day and he said, oh, this is great. I've never seen anything like it by the wife. Of course he had it because nobody writes bills of particulars like that. You answer a question, yes, no, maybe, and you go right. on to the next one. Right, less right. information, the better. Right, right. exactly. Yeah, I right. write books. <laughs> but what he did was he provided me with multiple opportunities to learn, regardless of the seriousness of the case. And of course, he was there to make sure that I was on the right track. But of course. I argued motions, I did appeals, I argued appeals, I tried cases. Whatever was there, I had an opportunity to do. And not just second seat, although I did second seat him on some major cases. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. What's the, what's your favorite area of law? My favorite? Mm-hmm. I don't know that I really have a favorite. Uh, there are particular cases, and I shouldn't even say cases. What I should say are there are particular people yeah, and their problems and issues that jump out at me. Yeah, and that I feel that I want to make sure that I get the hundred percent right resolution for that client. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. I feel that the defendant has done a terrible wrong, and some person's life has been upturned for no reason whatsoever, just because of fate and thoughtlessness of someone else. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think what's... yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Julie. Go you, ahead. We love all our clients. Work hard yeah. for them, but there's some you just you have a real affinity for their yeah. situation, and and it's just hard not to right. wanna. Yeah. Right. So you connect. Sorry, at some level particular. Jump over you or something. Right. No, no, no. You're good. So curious. What is the court system in New York? We ours is vastly changed. I haven't physically set foot in a courtroom in quite some time. What is, what's the state of the court system there? Are you Zoom-based or what's going on there? Well, we're doing Zoom and we are appearing in person. The courts are all open. They have been for a while. Our issue is that for the two years that the courts were closed, we developed quite a backlog of trials. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that if I'm putting a case on the calendar today for trial, it's really unlikely that we're going to be reached for trial for two, maybe to three years. It's that band. So that's familiar. It's probably about right. right. Yeah. We kind of know the same backlog. And then recently with the with the newest tort reform changes in Florida, <laughs> now, now there's have, a whole bunch more lawsuits. There's the on them. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We actually just got, Julie, was it Hillsborough County? I think Tampa. They... Yes. Judges there decided we're going to enter automatic stays in these cases and the stay will expire on a date that coordinates with the case number. So they divided case numbers because they cannot handle the so tens many. of thousands of cases that were filed within a period of a week or so. Because yeah. we once we realize this is coming and it's going to be signed into law the day it passes and it yeah. 
it becomes like three weeks flat. I mean, just yeah. So like that. Did it change? How did the Lord change in Florida? The easy uh, stuff. We changed our statute of limitations from four to two years. We now do comparative fault at the fifty over fifty percent mark. You're precluded from recovering. They've significantly changed uh, negligent security premises cases. The the the, the criminal is yeah. now in the verdict form. And then the, the damages that we can present in the way of medical evidence has been substantially constrained. For instance, 120% of Medicare would be the allowed amount. They did away with case values or fees. Mm-hmm. If, if the insured has to sue their own insurance company, those are gone. So everybody wanted to get cases that were reasonably ripe filed because that at least preserved those cases with respect to the longstanding laws in place. Excuse me. Yes, you. Thanks so much for listening to That's What She Pled. We hope you're enjoying it so far. If you have any questions or would like to talk more about this topic, you can find us at lawpoweredbywomen.com. And all of our social media platforms are listed in the show notes. So there was, oh gosh, was it 100,000, 80,000 cases filed within about a 10-day period in the state? So we're still, we still have some residual COVID backlog. Right. And (laughs) um, of course, at the same time, all the courts started really cracking down on making sure cases were not languishing on the docket. So right. you know, we have these case management protocols, which envision an 18 month, you know, from filing to trial um, time frame. So good luck. Right. Yeah. Right. A whole bunch of yeah. variables at play. That, right. Yeah. So in New York also, what makes it a little a somewhat challenging is that a lot of judges have their own rules. So that from court to court, you can have one judge asking for Zoom conferences, file your papers, do this, another one come in person, argue this. Wow. And it gets very confusing. Yeah, we we do that. Local rules and with the judges there, it it definitely pays to know your judges. For sure. We're sure. (laughs) Although I think broadly speaking, like non-evidentiary stuff is always going to be via Zoom. Uh-huh. Now it seems like yeah, Which is, but I, I appreciate it. But there are there are t- I'm sure you see too, Michelle. Do you see people on Zoom? You've got an attorney without a jacket on and uh, sitting outside on a park bench drinking his coffee during a hearing. That, dri- and I say his. That's interesting. That's only because of what I've seen. But that drives me crazy. I mean, there's a courtroom decorum that I don't care if I'm sitting in my office or in the courtroom. There is still right. an appropriate way to appear. Oh my gosh! Right, right. That's horrifying to me. So I really haven't seen very much of that. I see attorneys coming, you know, perhaps not dressed up in a suit, but certainly dressed at least from the waist up. Right. <laughs> well, we're right. all guilty of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's good. But I've seen it. Maybe it's a Florida stories. thing. No, no, it's probably not. I've heard the stories of people speaking inappropriately, acting inappropriately, dressed inappropriately. Right. Uh-huh. I have a feeling that if they appear in front of judges, then the judges say, this is that. You're you're right. 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 Please right. leave my courtroom until you're prepared. I had, well, you right. saw the cat, the cat filter guy. Yes. I mean, that went viral. Yes. 
Right. But then I had one, a hearing that I was in where the, the defendant, I don't remember, I don't remember what it was, but he showed up and, you know, you can, you can type your name at the bottom of the screen. You can tell him who's appearing. Right. It said something really inappropriate, really obscene. Oh and so God. the judge was, is going, okay, who's the person with the whatever? I felt so bad for this guy because he goes, my brother set this up for me and I have no idea what he put in there and he's just playing a prank on me and I'm so sorry, Your Honor. It was, I mean, it was, it was funny. I was, I was mortified for him, but right. things like right. that. I mean, it's, check your well, name when you log in. <laughs> the expectation is you, you, you know your way around Zoom. And you know what to do, which, of course, implicitly would include making sure that <laughs> right, your name is correct. Right. Sure. Well, at this point, yeah, I think most of us started learning Zoom in March of 20, right? Exactly. The pandemic exactly. started. Right. Now we're conversant. Right. Now yeah. it's just, yeah, it's it's second nature. So there's definitely some some good parts. On on the other hand, I really, I miss the feeling of we're doing this the right way. I know. My, my clients are paying me for a job. I might as well go to court and do it. Yeah, I get it. Well, I think the Zooms have, in a lot of instances, have speeded up the process. Because before for us in New York, or we have a discovery conference at the beginning of the case where we have what they used to be called uh, 8As or preliminary conferences. So everybody would have to appear and you'd end up sometimes in a courtroom with another 100, 150 lawyers. Right. Take forever. You'd have to come back at 2 o'clock. So conceivably, one lawyer could be tied up on one case all day long. This way, with Zoom, the judge can get a lot of things done. The attorneys can get a lot of things done. Whereas we do a lot of these preliminary conferences without any court intervention and just submit them to the court for signature. Mm -hmm. Same thing happens with oral arguments. Same thing can happen with the settlement conference. Of how many times you need to go to court to hear your adversary say, Your Honor, I haven't gotten anybody yet. I need another adjournment. Mm-hmm. So at least this way, things are handled somewhat more expeditiously. Yeah. 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 And just the geography of it, too. I know there are attorneys, for instance, that do lots of sort of smaller things, you know, and they'd be racing up and down from, you know, this this county court to that county court and now that right. can knock out a whole lot more mm-hmm. um yeah behind their desk so yeah. so what's your average day look like are you in the office uh, daily? yeah well again unfortunately we're not trying very many cases i don't know exactly what the statistic is right now but the last time i checked you know the new york city is divided into counties we have five counties in new york city itself brooklyn had tried about 270 cases. Manhattan had tried about 50. The Bronx, about the same. Queens, even less. So with the small number of cases being tried, uh, the delays, we're not really getting into court to try our cases as much as I'd like. And the times that I've gone to conferences, it's been a little frustrating because I go on a case that I expect will be conferenced and it's just adjourned because there were so many cases on that particular yeah. day to conference. Right. But you know, we're ready every time that case is called, whatever case it is. And how frustrating is it to go back to your client and go, no, sorry. Right. <laughs> Again. Right. 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 Because it's, it's not yeah. great for the client. Yeah. No, it's not. And, and at some point it's... I, 
unfair. I don't like using the word unfair, but it is it is it's unfair to to circumstances and clients who are going, okay, I am strapped. I right. can't wait any longer. And unfortunately that's what happened during COVID with us is we just had so many clients who were right on track for, for trial. Right. So many of them who said, No, you don't hear me. Go ahead, settle. You can't wait. You have to resolve this. And we're going, please don't please don't resolve. But they don't have any choice. And the right. longer it gets pushed out, it's yeah, it just compounds the losses, it seems, and they give but up. We are, we are doing mediations in New York. At all? So we are doing that. We do. Oh, okay. Are. Yeah. Oh, yes, we, yes, yes. Yeah. There are, you know, a lot of mediation companies, any of the insurance companies aren't interested in mediating. And I find that you get a fair figure. And if you don't like the figure, there's always the trial to back you up and just mm-hmm. keep on going with the case. And what I found also, at least during COVID, that we were able to settle cases over the telephone. Mm-hmm. That, that didn't, COVID didn't yeah. stop us. The fact that the courts were not moving ahead as quickly didn't stop us from resolving cases. Yeah. No, it didn't, yeah. it didn't stop us either. Is mediation mandatory in New York? No. No, no. Oh, okay. so, it is. Because it is here. Florida. Right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So these are private mediation companies, NAM, International Association, JAMS, SAM, they're a variety <laughs> of names. Okay. Oh, there's a little yeah. thing going. Yeah. We have a we have a mediation cutoff date every every mm-hmm. circuit case. We have to mediate before before trial. You know, you you learn who the the good mediators are, are that you really understand. Okay, you work for this because there are some mediators who do nothing. Right. Right. Um, but it gives you a fan. I, I honestly half the time use it as an opportunity for for my clients who I can tell them until I'm blue in the face. Control. Right. But when I have some somebody else saying to them, listen, you need to get a grip about what you, I understand you've been through this, but there's, there are so many Your things. expectations. Right. Yeah. So a lot of times I use it more as a, as a client control tool as well. But yeah, we have, we have good success at mediation. I mean, it's the best time to really be in control of your own destiny. Right. Otherwise you're, you're trusting six jurors who couldn't figure out a way not to be on a jury. Right. Right. But also it gives you good insight and to what the defendant's best play is. Of course. Right. Yeah, it always amazes me, too, that they present that. <laughs> I'm tighter-lipped at mediation. <laughs> I, I understand the incentive structure for doing that. And you know what? It also, again, affirms with your client when you've been telling them they're going to concede liability or what, whatever the case may be. This is going to be a case about your damages. And they're still stuck on... You know, it's not fair. Something that wasn't fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's not fair damage. Yeah. Um, that's or, you know, and and then they hear that and they're like, oh, okay, I guess she was right. Right. Sometimes. Right. Anyway, yeah, mediation mediations are, I think, a good thing to be required, certainly in the interest of judicial economy. Mm-hmm. Which, right. So what do you do for, like, when you're not working and... What is what is a so, sure? So, well, I'm lucky. I'm in New York City, so yeah. of course I have new museums and Broadway and plays and music available to me. But I'm I'm fairly active in sports, so I play tennis, and I took up golf a few years ago, and um, I ride polo. Oh, all right. Which I also took up a few years ago. Uh, I had a isn't very- that a pretty dangerous sport? 
Well, I'm not playing professionally. And yes, if I was galloping down the field at 50 miles an hour with five other guys swinging a ballot at me, it might be dangerous. But we have a little polo field here where they, yeah, there's polo season. And it's, right. it's a beautiful sport. It's a beautiful sport. Yeah. But, you know, it's, this is very amateurish, but it's still on a polo pony with the a mallet, mallet or what oh, that cantering down the field. And so I have a friend who rides and had several horses. She kept on saying, why don't you come and try it? Why don't you come and try it? And one summer I did try it. And I just fell in love with it. We're out in a beautiful mm. field in Long Island at Riverhead. And it almost feels like Disney. I'm real allowed to say Disney when I'm talking to Florida people. Of course. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Still, of course. <laughs> and it still is what it is. Right. So you drive down a road and Bambi comes jumping out and Thumper and the Bluebirds. Right. And I'm going to say Field. And the horse is very lovely. She's a nice little girl. And uh, she has a hapes. an Argentinian name that I can't pronounce, so I just pull her honey. <laughs> there you go. Right. Oh, I wouldn't have even. Gosh. That's awesome. That's just not something that you hear people say. Uh, several years ago, we got invited to actually sponsor a women's polo tournament. Okay. So we got to see women in action too, which was, it was fun. It was a great afternoon. Yeah. Pretty cool. It is. So. It's a lot of fun. No pickleball? No, no. I play tennis. I don't. Yeah. Well, right. I just had to ask because, you know, I don't even know what pickleball. Uh, uh, that's a thing there. I mean, they just built a new facility. Julie, I bet you saw they didn't. They just built a new indoor pickleball facility locally. Club. Club. Mm-hmm. Excuse right. me. Club. I understand it's the fastest growing sport in yeah. the country. Yeah. LeBron James and Tom Brady. And, you know, they've got all these celeb celebrities, you know, investing and promoting. So it's crazy. Right. But it's also a sport that drives, I think, people crazy because it makes this very annoying noise. Exactly. So they put these pickleball courts in. People think it's great until they have to listen to the ding, ding, ding all the time. Oh. Oh. I know I I know. It's when I sold my house, the buyer, well, a potential buyer, because we had a lot of property in the back, a potential buyer wanted to know if the HOA would allow them to install a pickleball court in the backyard. Okay. And I had never heard the word pickleball this a couple of years ago. I'd never heard the word, what on earth is that? So that's okay. And now suddenly it's everywhere. So I understand there are a lot of injuries from pickleball because people <laughs> think that it's easy to do because it's a smaller court and it's a smaller racket. But in fact, you have to be pretty nimble running back and forth. Yes. And you're not the lateral movement. Right. You're not turning around and running. You're actually moving backwards and causes a lot of people to fall down and hurt themselves. And the ball itself is hard, so. Yeah, but it's a wiffle ball. It's not. Yeah, but it's hard plastic. So right. anyway, it would hurt. <laughs> I would just roll an ankle. I just, I know it. Yeah. I know it. So, oh, we could talk forever, Michelle. I would. I would, actually, what I would love to get from you, you're you're just a, a, a bona fide powerhouse female in business. What if there were some some takeaway i mean we still you know it's it's the good old boys club i'm sure it is still there it is here but if there were some takeaway or how how do you find it best to market yourself so one of the things that julie and i run into is we are either too nice and too smiley or we're too Too soft there's a word that i won't use but we're just we come off as 
yeah, those women. Angry. Right. Right. Where's the? Where do you find right. the middle ground? Sure. So I don't think I've ever been accused of being angry. Oh, we've had okay. some stuff said. <laughs> All right. Oh yeah, unsolicited, vindictive, or whatever that, or all the words that women are traditionally used with women. I'm marking myself as a woman with all the qualities that we have that men do not have. That perhaps we're more compassionate. We understand better. We have a greater understanding of the problems, the day-to-day problems. That mm-hmm. we're more sympathetic. We listen better. We're better at problem solving. We're more intuitive. And that's how I've always conducted myself. I think at the beginning, when I first started to practice, it was it was very tough. It was really, really tough. Because first of all, I was young. I was extremely young. That's number one. I was 23 when I tried my first case. Oh, people yeah. were still, think about it. People were just graduating college and getting out there but and number two i was really the only woman in the court that i was practicing in and the guys there treated me like a joke mm-hmm. uh, every single yeah. case no matter how simple i had to come into court with copies of the law because no matter what i said the guys would laugh that was their way of dealing with me and I'd have to show the judge the law. Of course, the judge would know the law, but regardless, I had to go through this whole charade of mm-hmm. proving that I knew what I was talking about doing. And eventually, I tried one case after the next. And back then, the jurisdiction in Brooklyn and civil court was $10,000. And I know it sounds like, oh, so easy to get a $10,000 verdict from a jury, but frankly, it wasn't that easy. But I kept on hitting the bell as they would say. So you do that enough, and the lawyers take notice. They stop. Right. They're like their daughter, their toy, the fun, funny thing on the block, and they say, oh, my goodness, I really have to take this woman serious, seriously. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it's time and preparation and effort and understanding you're going to face it. Right. But as yeah. far as marketing, I just always try to be who I am. I, I just, that's it. Mm-hmm. And... You know, street theory, I've learned, says that the best way to accomplish what you want is cooperation. So whether it's true or not, what I always try to do is find out from my adversary exactly what they need or want to properly evaluate my case. Because how are they going to know what the real value of my case is unless they know the full extent of my client's injuries. I'm not talking about giving away secrets, but I'm talking about making sure that I have developed every single one of my client's injuries so that they are apparent to the insurance company and defense counsel so that they put the right value on it. If I keep that all to myself, how are they ever going to know? Yeah. 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 And there's, I've seen that too. There's different kind of schools hear about no i'm gonna i'm gonna keep this all to myself that doesn't benefit anybody right i don't want to show up at mediation and then present some great big case point of discovery opportunity to the authority to do anything with it exactly exactly trial by ambush trial by surprise is is yeah that's very 
that, that's not how it works. No. Have discovery and and that sort of thing to sort of encourage that. But I think fundamentally, what you're talking about, Michelle, is exactly right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, this yeah. has been fun. I mean, yeah, your husband. stories are are so interesting, and your perspective. And so, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Do you, do you have a blog? Do you have any, do you share yeah. things online? Um, yeah, Facebook. I have a Facebook account. I have LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. So, okay. So look things. you up. Oh, absolutely. Please yeah. do. Look you and up. And it's Merman, M-I-R-M-A-N, Michelle with Correct. one L. Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's we're trying to figure out now what's the what's the wave. We do kind of a written blog, but I think people are more into maybe video now. So right. maybe we will start doing some video blogs or but as we collect stories like yours, but you've just got you've got a new line of really cool stories. Yes. Oh. So that's what I've been doing actually. I've been doing video blogs. So you should oh. go take a look at my Facebook and LinkedIn page. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. For sure. We'll go for it's more inspiration. All right. Little vignettes. <laughs> And then we write the words across the video also. Mm-hmm. So people can listen and look. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. All right. We'll that do that when we're done here. Yeah. And it was Michelle meeting you. You too. It was so great meeting you. And if you get to Sarasota, give us a shout. We'll go to Apollo Match. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Very Thank, Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So that's, uh, that's what she pled. And we're all set for this week. So everybody have a great week. Uh, We are Julie and Christy. We are Law Powered by Women. Um, So you can find us, follow us, send us questions, send us your love. And that's that. So we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to That's What She Pled podcast. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Lurson Goldberg lawyers. The content has been made available for general informational and educational purposes only and may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. The content is not intended to be a substitute for legal advice from your individual attorney and the information provided does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice.